Lowitzer woke up on April 26, 2010, grabbed her backpack and cell phone, and ran out the door to school at 6.15 a.m., just like every other school day. Later on her way to her bus that afternoon to go home, she waved back towards her best friend, Savannah. Savannah hollered back to her, I love you, I'll see you tomorrow. Once on the bus, she called her mom to let her know she was going to walk to Burger Barn to get her paycheck and try to pick up a shift for that evening. Her mom initially didn't want her to, even though Burger Barn was less than a half mile from their house, it meant Allie would have to walk down a main road that didn't have sidewalks. Allie promised her mom she'd be careful and would let her know if she was able to get a shift that night so her mom could pick her up. Her mom reluctantly agreed. Allie walked off the bus at 2.57 p.m. that afternoon and was never seen again. Where is Allie Lowitzer? Hello, and welcome back to the Where Are They podcast. Most unsolved missing persons cases are baffling to some degree, but wait until you hear the story of Allie Lowitzer, a young girl who vanished in broad daylight from a busy road with zero witnesses. The goal of our podcast is to spread awareness of these unsolved cases. The case of Allie Lowitzer has been unsolved since 2010, but someone definitely knows something and two parents still look for their daughter every single day. So thank you in advance for listening and sharing Allie's story. Let's keep her name out there and keep her story alive in the media. A little bit of pressure can result in finally getting answers someday. 
If you're not following us on Instagram and Facebook, please do. It really helps our cases get shared. If you are watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel if you can and help us promote these cases and the names of the people missing. Our charity focus right now is Texas EquiSearch. We've been following the Summerwells case and EquiSearch has recently gone to Tennessee to help search for the five-year-old girl. If you are interested in donating to them directly, I will link them on our Facebook page so you can do that. Or remember our merch sales support our charities as well. Go grab a Where Are They podcast t-shirt, coffee mug, hoodie, cosmetic bag. Anything from our store helps support the charities as well as promotes awareness of the show. We also welcome case suggestions from our listeners. Send me an email at canwefindthem at gmail.com or a DM on Instagram if there is a case that you would like to hear. Today's show partner is Acorns. The Acorns app is a great way to begin investing with just a few dollars and very low risk. In fact, you can control how much or how little you invest. There are no minimums. Want to just invest $5? No problem. This is an opportunity to invest with just a few dollars where you control your risk. You can even choose your risk level, conservative, moderate, or aggressive, or even levels in between. So y'all know I'm not recommending any products that I don't use or agree with. I downloaded Acorns a while back, and in the beginning I wasn't too sure, so I set up to invest $5 a week to just see what happens. What's cool is I choose my investment risk and Acorns handles the rest. I can also log in and see how I'm doing via the app anytime. I can add more money, withdraw money, or I can stop the regular deposits anytime. My favorite part is that it can be set up with any dollar amount and it can be set up on autopilot, although it doesn't have to be. You can also make a one-time $5 deposit. So what are my results after a few months? My total percentage earned from market growth was 24%, which when you think about it is way better than even a high yield savings account which is only earning about a half a percent right now. Check out our link in the show notes to download the Acorns app and Acorns will give you a free $5 to start with. Most people think they need large sums of money to start investing, but you don't. The important thing is to just start. Make your money work for you. Over 9 million people have been able to watch their money grow with Acorns. Again, the link will be in our show notes and on our Facebook page this week as well. So go get your money and thank you to Acorns for supporting our show. Before we dive into what happened on that fateful day in Spring, Texas, back in April of 2010, let's take a quick look at who Allie Lowitzer was. Alexandria Joy Lowitzer was born February 3rd, 1994 to parents John and Joanne. She had an older brother, Mason, and by all accounts, the two were close, even if known to occasionally battle in some normal sibling rivalry. I mean, who doesn't? They lived in Spring, Texas. Spring is a city located just north of Houston, and in 2010, the population of Spring, Texas was just over 54,000 residents. Spring was considered a good area to raise a family in. Predominantly working middle class, there are several shopping areas and restaurants, including the local Burger Barn, where Allie had recently gotten a job. Allie lived with her mother and her brother as her parents had separated just two years prior in 2008. 
Allie was a bit bitter with her dad regarding the separation, but John was still very active in her life. According to her mother, Joanne, Allie was super excited when she turned 16 because she could finally get a job and start earning her own money. Shortly after her 16th birthday that February, she started working at a restaurant called The Burger Barn. This restaurant was located just a half mile from her home, but because it was on a main road without sidewalks, her grandmother or a family member would always drive her to work and pick her up. Allie Lowitzer was a great student and involved in many activities as a child and even as a teenager. She loved sports, especially being the catcher on her softball team. She was a Girl Scout. She enjoyed singing in the choir and she played the flute. Allie also had a lot of friends. It's mentioned in almost every report of this case that she was a very active texter, sending over 3,000 text messages a month. And this was back in 2010. Allie did have a MySpace account, but her mother said they didn't have a home computer at that time, so she could only use the account when she visited other places, which she rarely did. Allie's mom had said that Allie preferred to have people coming over to her house to hang out. She didn't really like to go places or go to other people's houses to hang out. In 2008, Allie's parents separated, leaving Allie feeling a little bit bitter towards her dad. She would remain living with her mother and her brother, but her dad did live nearby. And by all accounts, even though Allie was feeling a little resentful towards her parents, both were still very active and big parts of her life. In early March, Allie began working at the Burger Barn. On the date of April 26, 2010, Allie wasn't scheduled to work, but she did want to go pick up her paycheck that day and see if she could maybe pick up an extra shift for that evening to make some extra money. Around 2.30 p.m., she called her mom to let her know her plans. Since Joanne generally didn't allow or want Allie to walk to Burger Barn, she initially told Allie no, she didn't want her doing that. Allie would persist, however, that she would be careful, and eventually her mom relented. They ended the conversation with Joanne asking Allie to let her know if she did indeed pick up a shift so that they knew if they would have to pick her up that night. Allie promised her she would keep in touch and let her mom know. When Joanne got home that day around 5.30 p.m., she was surprised to find that no one was home. She hadn't heard back from Allie about her working, so she had assumed that she had not been able to pick up a shift and had just come back home. And as mentioned before, Allie was more of a homebody and preferred to be at home as opposed to being really anywhere else. Mason, Joanne's 18-year-old son and Allie's half-brother, was also not at home. When Joanne had reached Mason, he said that he had not seen Allie and that he had left the house just as her bus was going down the street. Joanne figured that Allie had probably been able to just pick up a shift after all and had been too busy to call or text her and let her know. Joanne continued to call and text Allie, but received no answers. Joanne figured she was just busy. So around 9 p.m., Joanne left to go pick Allie up at the Burger Barn. Her heart would sink, however, when she approached the restaurant and saw it all locked up, lights out, and nobody there. 
Generally, they were still closing up at that time or just in the process of finishing up. But that night, they had been able to get out a few minutes early. Joanne eagerly looked around for any sign of her daughter, but saw nothing and nobody. She drove the route back home slowly, looking to see if Allie had maybe begun walking home. But there was no Allie. Once at home, Joanne realized that Allie wasn't there either, and panic started to set in, especially because Allie wasn't answering her phone either. Joanne started to contact Allie's friends, but no one had seen her. Someone mentioned that DJ, a boy that Allie had begun to talk to at school, had also been looking for Allie that night through her friends. Joanne drove over to DJ's house, and he was actually upset that Allie hadn't been texting him back all afternoon and evening. Around 11 p.m., Joanne and John called the police to report their daughter missing. A deputy did come out to Joanne's house around midnight and she looked around and took their statements and advised them that Allie was probably just a runaway or off with a friend and would most likely turn back up in the morning. The deputy instructed the parents to just call the police in the morning with an update, but she was pretty sure that Allie would just turn back up. There would be no efforts to look for Allie that night by law enforcement or even put out a bolo, a be on the lookout. So John went back home to get some rest that night and Mason and a couple of his friends would go out looking for Allie. Joanne stayed up all night waiting for Allie to come home. John has since come out and said that he just thought maybe Allie was having a little bit of a rebellious teenage moment And he kind of thought, like law enforcement did, that she'll probably just turn back up in the morning. At 5 o'clock a.m., Joanne called John to let him know that there was still no sign of Allie. He thought they should wait and see if she might show up at school. So at the start of the school day, they checked in with the school and found that she had not shown up there either. At 9 o'clock a.m., Joanne called the police to let them know that Allie was still missing. Remember, the police had instructed her to do just that, call them with an update. The police were still convinced Allie was just a runaway, despite the fact that she had no history of running away and the family insisted this was completely out of character. Plus, Allie had not taken any money, her phone charger, or any personal belongings at all. So the family would have to launch their own investigation, and that's exactly what they did. They began to speak to Allie's friends and other kids from school. Some had said they saw Allie leaving school and walking across the street to the Burger King. But this was not what Allie had told her mom. So John went to the school bus garage to see if they had any video surveillance on the bus, and they did. There is video footage of Allie getting on the bus at 2.25 p.m. and then off the bus at 2.57 p.m. So the Burger King theory was ruled out. John then went to the burger barn to talk to the manager. The manager on duty the previous night said he hadn't seen Allie at all. And in fact, she never even made it in to pick up her paycheck as she had said that she was doing. One thing that had concerned John is... There was a young man named Chase that worked at the burger barn with Allie. A couple weeks prior to Allie disappearing, 
John had learned that Chase had been trying to get Allie to go out with him. This did not sit well with John since his daughter was only 16 and Chase was in his young 20s. So he went up to Burger Barn to confront Chase and tell him he was too old for his daughter. Nothing else came of the Chase incident and then it was mostly forgotten about. The Burger Barn wasn't able to provide any security footage But John noticed the gas station across the street did have several surveillance cameras. John asked them if he could view the footage from the 26th of April, and they agreed. They watched surveillance of the whole afternoon and into the evening, but Allie was never seen on camera. John said he tried to get a look into vehicles and even see if he could see license plate numbers of the vehicles on the camera, But he was unable to. So he turned the disc over to law enforcement, hoping that they would review it and possibly even be able to use different technology to enhance the footage enough to be able to see the license plates and even possibly see inside the vehicles. But the police would actually lose this disc altogether. The disc was never analyzed by law enforcement. Even to this day, that disc is considered lost. Meanwhile, Joanne was also conducting her own investigation. She knew that Allie's phone had a GPS locator on it, but remember this wasn't as readily accessible information as it is today. She was able to pull up the information through AT&T's app, The Family Map, and she learned that her phone was last known to be in the area exactly where she got off the bus. And the last registered ping was 3 o'clock p.m. This is just a couple minutes after the video surveillance shows her stepping down those bus steps. So when John had watched the video of Allie getting off the bus, he noticed that there were a couple boys who exited the bus with Allie at the same stop. So John found those boys and asked them, if they had seen anything unusual or or what they even witnessed that day at all. They told John that Allie had been on her phone and was lagging behind them as they got off the bus. They didn't really pay any attention beyond that. They did think that she turned towards the direction of Burger Barn instead of the direction towards her house, but they didn't see anything else. John had also discovered her last text message sent around 3 o'clock p.m., was to a friend named Jay. She had asked him if he wanted to come over and hang out, and he had replied to her that he couldn't, he was busy. There would be no other activity on Allie's phone. Despite daily pleas from the family, law enforcement still listed Allie as a runaway, and it was the family doing all of the investigating and searching. On May 3rd, A week after Allie disappeared, John and Joanne approached the police with all of their findings. And the police did agree to update her status in the system from runaway to endangered runaway. But Joanne was furious. She felt that the difference between those two classifications meant nothing, especially in the eyes of the public. Joanne wanted information sent out to the public so they could try to get tips or sightings or 
encourage someone to come forward with some type of information. The authorities did tell her that they had reviewed the stacks of journals that were found in Allie's room, and Allie had previously expressed thoughts of running away. To them, this confirmed their suspicions. Allie was a runaway. Joanne, however, felt that the entry in the journal that they were referring to was old. There was no date listed on it, and she said it was found in a journal book in the middle of the stack, which to her suggested this journal was from years ago. Family's investigation picked up a little bit of momentum when a friend of Joanne's suggested she contact the Laura Recovery Center. The Laura Recovery Center helps families in searching for missing and abducted children. From the website, the Laura Recovery Center is a nonprofit organization that works to prevent kidnappings and abductions and to recover victims of such events. The center is located in Friendswood, Texas, and is named for Laura Kate Smither, a 12-year-old girl who was abducted near her Friendswood home and murdered. Finally, with the help of the Laura Recovery Center, some physical searches were planned and carried out, and in turn, the local media started to pick up Allie's story. And as a result of that, the authorities also decided to take another look into Allie's case. In late May, the case was assigned to the Homicide Division, which I know it sounds scary when the word homicide comes up, but the thought process is they can conduct additional investigations, interviews, searches, etc. than the missing persons unit. But right away, the family comes under scrutiny. The house is searched and every family member is brought in multiple times for questioning and polygraphs. Joanne recalls at first how angry she was, thinking they were wasting their time and resources when they needed to be out looking for her daughter. However, she does admit now that she understands it as part of the process. And I can't think of a more emotional time for a parent. Your child is missing. You know something is wrong. And you have to fight tooth and nail to get anyone to listen. And then when they finally do, they're drilling you about her whereabouts. It's not an easy time for the parents or even authorities because they do have a job to do. Now, the Harris County Sheriff's Department was listening. Many tips would come in, including a tip from a pizza delivery guy saying that he had seen a young woman matching Allie's description talking to someone in a white truck. The location in which he saw this happen, however, was about a mile north of anywhere that Allie would have been. And despite further investigation into this tip, it didn't lead authorities anywhere. And sadly, the case would go cold. In 2012, the family would hire their first private investigator. He took another look at this possible witness sighting, and he wondered if Brandon Laverne may be responsible. If you are unfamiliar with Laverne, he is now a convicted murderer, convicted of killing two young women, one in 1999 and one in 2012. It is thought that there are possibly more victims. And Laverne had driven a white truck and had a sister that lived in the Springs area. Upon further investigation, 
However, authorities would rule him out as a suspect. Another tip was uncovered when a couple years after Allie's disappearance, it was alleged that a couple of her friends came forward with some information. They claimed they hadn't come forward before because they didn't want to get Allie into trouble. According to these friends, Allie had begun talking to an older man that lived in or near Las Vegas. She wasn't using her phone. She would borrow a friend's phone to communicate with him so she couldn't be caught. When Allie first vanished, these friends thought she had probably run off with him. In fact, they said at some point Allie had told them that she was thinking of running off with this man and living either in Florida or Las Vegas. So these friends thought they were keeping Allie's secret. But what's interesting is when I dove in to validate this information, I couldn't. There are just as many sources debunking this as there are sources that say this is true. And no one has come forward to make an official statement on this. Not the friends, not the authorities, and not even the family. And it also came to light during this time that the private investigator that they had hired, which had helped drum up a lot of these leads, had actually lied to them about many things and was not considered reliable. So the family would hire yet another PI in the way of Amber Kamick. Amber was an activist in the Houston area for missing persons and human trafficking cases. Now, if any of you are familiar with the Disappeared TV show, they featured the Allie Lowitzer case and Amber Kamek's investigation. However, much has come out saying that the TV show was highly sensationalized and many have criticized Amber for her role in that, claiming many of the things that happened in that show were made up, which, if true, is seriously sad. Clearly, the show was doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm not going to go into all of the details of what happened in that episode because of the unreliability of it. But one major piece that is often talked about is the theory that Allie was picked up in a human trafficking ring and taken to a house in Columbus, Ohio. Amber claimed that she saw Allie there. A sting operation was scheduled. The parents flew out to Columbus for this and when all is said and done, there was no Allie. Amber claimed they must have gotten her out of that home beforehand. One of the biggest criticisms of this is that Amber claimed to have seen Allie and worked with local authorities for this bust. But it took over a month to plan the sting operation. And Amber claimed that they took all the girls out of the house by then and replaced them with other girls. And I have two major questions about that. Why did it take over a month for something to be done? She thought she saw a missing girl, an endangered girl, but it took over a month to get back in the house. And my second question is, why were some of the girls removed and replaced with others? Is it part of the operation to keep rotating girls around there was some that said that the people in the house had a heads up that the sting was going down. So they decided to move the girls out and bring in other girls. But if that's the case, why bring in other girls at all if you know there's going to be a bust? 
So I don't know. There's a lot of criticism on that whole story. And honestly, I can totally see why. And I love watching investigation shows and documentaries, but I absolutely hate when they are sensationalized for ratings, especially at the expense of the family and loved ones involved. So what are the theories in Allie Lowitzer's disappearance? Theory number one, Allie did run away. Police, in fact, still have her classified as a runaway 11 years later. But this girl didn't take anything with her, including her money, identification, phone charger, or any personal belongings at all. It's been 11 years. No one has seen or heard anything in the way of Allie Lowitzer. And so while this theory is possible, it does seem unlikely. Theory number two. Allie was abducted by a stranger. There is a small stretch of road that leads to the burger barn that is undeveloped, trees on both sides of the road. Did something happen to her there and someone saw an opportunity to take her? And if they did take her out of the area, that could be why no evidence of Allie Lowitzer has ever been found. Maybe authorities are looking in the wrong places. Theory number three, someone she knew was waiting for her. Possibly this older man she was talking to and Allie didn't know he was waiting for her. Or what about this person from the burger barn? Allie's father, John, suspected him at first because he had just spoken to him a couple of weeks prior to Allie's disappearance. John had also suspected Allie's friend, Jay, the friend she had texted with as she was getting off the bus and asking him to come over. John had said when he went to Jay's house to speak with him, both Jay and Jay's father were uncooperative and even angry with him for coming over. And remember, we know Allie texted him, but we only know the contents of the text message from Jay himself. Other theorists have pointed at Mason, her brother, Mason admitted he left the house as the bus was going by, but yet he said he didn't see Allie anywhere. There's certainly a lot of possibilities here, which means this theory cannot be ruled out either. Theory number four, human trafficking. Now this does go in line with theory number two, abduction by a stranger, but maybe there was a deeper motive here. Central Texas location on the I-35 corridor gives perpetrators easy access to both Dallas and Houston, which are rated two of the top estimated trafficking cities in the state. And Spring is just minutes north of Houston. So could this be a possibility in this case? I just don't know. And this one leaves a lot of open possibilities. And tips and clues have pretty much dried up over the years. What do you think happened to Allie Lowitzer? Allie's family continues to search for answers and works to keep her name out there. I urge you to follow the Facebook page set up by her mother, Hope for Allie. Joanna is very active in the missing persons community and has even started a support group for mothers of missing children. Show your support and like her page. The family needs all the support and help they can get. Allie was last seen getting off the bus in Spring, Texas on April 26, 2010. At the time of her disappearance, she stood 5'2 and weighed 145 pounds. 
She is described as a Caucasian female with brown hair that was dyed red and blue eyes. She was wearing a white t-shirt or spaghetti strap top, a gray hooded zip-up sweatshirt, black and white checkered skinny jeans, and black sneakers. She carried a blue LG slide cell phone and a multicolored checkered backpack with a dark colored strap. Her ears and nose are pierced and she has pink braces on her upper and lower teeth. She has a faint chickenpox scar between her eyes. If you have any information about Allie Lowitzer, you are urged to call the Harris County Sheriff's Office at 1-713-221-6000 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. That's 1-800-843-5678. Thank you so much for listening to Allie's story. As always, we encourage you to spread awareness and share her story any way that you can. Someone has to know something in this case. We will be watching this case very closely, as we do with all the cases we cover. So please make sure you are following us on social media, as we will post any updates or news as we receive it. If you'd like to support our show and our charities, please check out our podcast merch. I'll link the store in the description. And you can also show your support by rating us on your podcast platform. Or if you're watching on YouTube, give our video a thumbs up. Leave us a comment. Also, we would love to hear your thoughts on this case. And lastly, a big thank you to our partner Acorns for this episode. Acorns is such an easy and simple app to use for investing, especially if you are newer to the investing world and want to risk only a couple of dollars while you learn the ropes. You can get a free $5 to invest when you use our link in the show notes. Honestly, if you set up $5 as a weekly deposit, I think you'll be shocked at the rate of return that you can earn. And I'm pretty sure everyone can find a way to spare a few dollars a week. Thank you all so much for tuning into today's episode on Allie Lowitzer. We pray for answers for her family and hope that something comes to light soon. It's been way too long. We will be back again next week with another Missing Persons episode. And until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones.